The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Welcome, glad you guys are here. Um, if you guys have Bibles, go ahead and open them up to uh, Luke 19. And while you're doing that, I'm just going to get you up to speed on a couple things going on, going on around here at Heritage. Uh, one thing you should know about... Um, Actually, if, raise your hand if you were able to, uh, raise your hand if you got the email in your, your inbox from Aaron and Angela get, with the survey about communication stuff. Did anybody get that? Okay, about half of you guys did. So really cool. Um, we want to hear from you guys kind of uh, how we can better communicate with you as a church. And so the way we're doing that is we, we put together a little survey that you guys can take. It takes like three minutes. Um, and we emailed that out to most of you. If, if you didn't get that email, it's probably because we don't have your email. So um, if you didn't get it, um, please email us at info at heritagefellowship.net and let, let Aaron or um, Angela know, and we'll make sure to get that to you. But we really want everyone to participate in that. And, and if you have got that in your inbox and it's just sitting there, please do that. We want to hear from you. This is going to really help our church uh, be a tighter family, I think, in a lot of ways. Secondly, uh, I don't know if you guys know, but Easter is one week from today, which is a really, really exciting thing, big deal. Um, Easter is a big deal around here. We make a big deal out of it because we make a big deal about Jesus, uh, and he rose from the dead, and that has all kinds of amazing implications uh, for us as Christians, amen. Uh, so we, we, we love Easter too because it typically brings a lot of folks in that maybe don't typically come to church, and uh, we want to be able to tell them the gospel, preach them the gospel. So a couple things you can do to get on board with Easter. One is bring some people, Okay, bring some friends. This is the, the one time a year that if you ask your neighbors to come to church, they'll probably say yes, uh, which is really cool. So capitalize on that, okay? Um, so invite your friends. And secondly, we use, if, you, if you're willing, would you sign up and join our Easter team? Um, there's a table right out on the hallway that you can sign up uh, to help out. We need all kinds of areas of help, barbecue setup, um, serving. Uh, we're going to do a big barbecue, nursery, kids, classrooms. Um, we do it up big on Easter. We're going to do baptisms. Uh, it's going to be a really, really fun time. So be sure and come out uh, for, for that. Um, and that's all I know. Everybody in Luke 19? Everybody there? Okay, let's all stand. We stand for the reading of God's word because we hold it in the highest of respect. So we're going to read this together. Luke 19, starting in verse... 28. When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it. And bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were, so those who were, were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt. They sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that, he, that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near the, the, and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, have, you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade round you, surround you, and hem you in on every side, and tear you down to the ground, and you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the word of God. You guys can go ahead and grab a seat. Father, I just uh, pray that you would anoint this time. Got it. Um, Lord, I know, I know the difference between me standing up here saying words and me standing up here being a vessel filled with the Holy Spirit. And I just have no interest in just standing up here and talking. Uh, so, Lord, we ask for the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit to fill me right now 
and to fill us right now and to bring power into this place. And as we declare, Jesus, what a good savior, what a good hero, what a good king you are, I pray that you would be magnified in this place. Lord, push me to the side this morning. Lord, bring freedom, bring conviction, bring honor to your name this morning. Exalt yourself, we pray. God, we're here because we love you and we honor you and we honor your word. So Lord, would you please work in Jesus' powerful name. God's people said, Amen. There, there's a few things um, as humans that I, I think most people agree on, and there's not very much, the seven billion people in the world, there's not very much that we agree on, um, but there are a few things uh, that we do agree on. One of those things is that the world is, is broken, uh, that the world is uh, not as it maybe should be, or ought to be, or could be. By the way, if you're looking for a good in for evangelism with your, your neighbor or whatever, that's a great place to start. Hey, doesn't the, isn't the world broken? And I guarantee they're not going to say, no, I think the world's perfect. No, I mean, do you watch the news? Like, uh, the world is, is broken. It's shattered. It's something we can all agree on. Uh, mostly, it's a universal truth. Listen to what Thomas, Thomas Jefferson said. He said, the art of life is the art of avoiding pain, and he is the best pilot who steers clearest the rocks. I love what Michelangelo said. He was a man of many words. He said, everything hurts. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. <laughs> Profound. No, seriously, though. Yeah. Uh, J.K. Rowling, he said, to hurt is as human as to breathe. In other words, uh, to be a human, you have to suck oxygen. And to be a human, you pretty much are going to hurt. Because the world is, is broken. It's, it's, it's shattered. Uh, but that's not the only universal thing that I think most humans believe. I think most humans also have a, a universal longing for a hero, for someone to come in and fix what's been broken. Uh, from the, let's take a look at the words of the great philosopher, theologian, uh, Ben Affleck. Um, let's put that up here. This is what Ben, this is what Benny said. Um, we certainly are in need, oh, little context, by the way. He, he said this in an interview leading up to his role in Batman, so he's talking about the genre of superhero movies, which, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but there's a superhero movie every, like, five minutes. Like, there's, new, there's so many superhero movies coming out. He said this. He said, we certainly are in need of heroes in 2017. There's a lot of stuff going on in the world, from natural to man-made disasters, and it's really scary. Part of the appeal of this genre is wish fulfillment. Wouldn't it be nice if there was somebody who can save us from all this? Save us from ourselves. Save us from the consequences of our actions, and save us from people who are evil. Wow, not bad, right? Man, there's some gospel in there. So even Ben Affleck, he realizes that the reason that people are flocking to these superhero movies is because we want a hero. We want a hero because we know the world is broken and we're hoping that someone can fix it. George Lucas, he said something similar uh, about the story Star Wars. Um, you know, Star Wars is uh, obviously one of the most popular stories of our um, millennia, really. Um, and when he was uh, talking about Star Wars, he said this. He said, the story being told in Star Wars is a classic one. Every few hundred years, the story is retold because we have a tendency to do the same things over and over again. He said in a separate quote, uh, the next one, he said, I've come to the conclusion that mythology, in other words, storytelling, is really a form of archaeological psychology. Mythology gives you a sense of what a people believes, what they fear. So listen to what Lucas is saying. He's saying, when I wrote Star Wars, I wanted to write not a new story, but really the story. The story that's been told since the beginning of time. The story that all of us in our deep being long to be true. That this world, we know it's broken, but man, could there be a hero that could save this world? Could there be someone that could really, could really redeem us? And you'll notice that, that all of those movies, from The Matrix to Star Wars to Lord, there's always the one. You notice that? There's always the one person, the one person that can bring everything into balance, the one person that can fix the problems. Only that person can fix it. Where do we get that? I think we get it because it's ingrained in our soul. I think we get it because it represents a truth, and that's what Lucas is saying. He's saying that this mythology actually represents something that's deep within us, and I think all humans long for a hero. This is actually all throughout the Old Testament, 
The Jews knew that everything was broken. In fact, the Old Testament is really uh, entirely an account of just how broken systemically humanity is. You want to see some of the worst things in the entire history of humanity? Just look at the Old Testament. It records it all. It's not shy about it. But the Jews in the Old Testament, they didn't just believe everything was broken. They also believed there was a hero that was going to come and fix what was broken. They called him the Messiah. And he's all throughout the Old Testament scriptures. He prophesied of, and they believed that when this Messiah was going to come, he was going to bring something called shalom. Can you guys say shalom? That's how Jew- Jewish people greet each other, okay? It's kind of like a, hey, peace, you know. But it means a lot more than that, actually. Shalom is a, a deep, uh, a deep healing and whole completeness. Shalom represents really like peace on the entire earth, everything being right as it should be. And so in the Old Testament, the, the, the anticipation of the Jews is when will the hero come and heal all things? When will this Messiah come and put everything right? So we agree on those things, right? But the things that we don't agree on as humans uh, typically are who is the hero or what is the hero? That's where we don't agree. Because, you know, some people, um, a lot of people in, in, in our Western uh, kind, of, kind of worldview, they think this. They think that if we could just fix poverty, maybe poverty's the villain. Maybe if we just leveled all the socioeconomic classes, maybe that would eliminate uh, the evil in the world. Maybe, maybe it's just lack of education. Maybe, you know, if everyone was enlightened, then we wouldn't have all this religious dogma um, and people saying these ultimate truth claims. Maybe if everyone was educated, then, then no one would hurt each other and no one would kill each other and there wouldn't be any more, well, is that true? Hitler was pretty educated, actually. He was educated in the ideas of evolution, which led to one of the worst holocausts in the humanity. So we don't agree on what the enemy is. We also don't agree on what the hero could be. Some people think the hero uh, is some kind of a utopian society. That's what Rome thought. That's what Hitler thought. He said, if we can just make a big enough uh, city or army or, or empire that kind of consumes the whole world, then we can kind of manufacture peace. We can enforce peace. So the hero is actually an empire. How many people have said that? I mean, dictators have been born out of that thinking. Some people think the hero is the right political system. Is it democracy? We just spread democracy enough? Is that going to fix the world? Some people think it's just demilitarizing the earth. Just get rid of nuclear weapons. Everything will be fine. Some people in the 60s thought it's just a lot of mushy love, you know? If we just, like, take our shirts off and, you know, love each other. <laughs> um, don't take that too far. Uh, you know, then I don't even know where that came from. Um, that was one of those things that wasn't in my notes, and it should have for a reason. But what if, okay, what if the hero is in any of those things? What if the hero is actually something we would have never have thought up or dreamed up or even expected? What if the hero is completely outside of the realm of what we ever would have thought up on our own? What if, what if, what if the great enemy isn't outside of us, but it's actually inside of us? What if that was true? What if the issue wasn't poverty or social things or um, political things? What if the enemy is actually, and this is weird, what if the enemy was actually us? What if we were the problem? What if we were the disease? What if we were the issue? What if we were the reason that the world is so broken? What if that was true, then the hero would have to deal with something more than just superpowers and hunger issues, right? And people say all the time, you know, how can God be God and be loving and allow all of this stuff? Why doesn't he just come in and fix the stuff? Hmm. Well, he will, and he's going to. But is that the true enemy? Is hunger and starvation and cold and poverty and disease, is that the true enemy or is that the symptom of a greater enemy? Is death the enemy or is sin actually lead to death. See, God knows in order to save humanity, Jesus knows in order to save humanity, he has to become the hero that no one would ever ask for because if we asked for the hero we wanted, he would just come in and make us rich and wealthy and comfortable. He would come in and he would take out all of our enemies and establish us. The problem is the true enemy would still be there. What if that hero came and we so hated him because we were so evil and we thought everything he said was, seemed to, to make us uncomfortable, so what if the hero actually came and we killed the hero? 
What if the hero showed up and he was so different than what we would possibly have imagined the hero was going to be, we put him to death? What if? In our text, you know, we don't meet the hero that we would expect. And that's kind of what I want to point out this morning in the text. We don't meet the hero that we would invent. We meet the hero that we need. We meet the hero that we truly and deeply need. See, Jesus came not to fight the enemy we would ask him to fight, but he came to fight the enemy that must be fought. He came not to establish the peace that we would invent, but the peace that your deep longings and your soul cannot be satisfied without. He is that hero. So, going to Luke 19 now, uh, I'm going to give you a quick uh, quick. Um, outline. I'm kind of an outline person, so this, these are kind of like file folders for you to sort some of this text out. There's three divisions in this text that we just read. Uh, if you want to jot them down real quick, that's fine. If you just want to sit and listen, that's fine too. Uh, but here's the divisions I see. The first uh, division in the text is um, verse 28 through 34, and that's the preparation of Jesus. Or, I'm sorry, the preparation by Jesus. This is where Jesus is sort of setting things up And then verses 35 to 40, we see the procession for Jesus. In verses 41 to 44, we see the proclamation of Jesus. The preparation by Jesus, the procession for Jesus, the proclamation of Jesus. We'll just work through those. Um, And there's a lot here to cover, so um, bear with me as we get into some of this background. It's all going to hopefully come together in the end. Fingers crossed. So, here we go. Verse 28, start at the beginning. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. I'll pause right there. I want to give you guys a little bit of background. Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. You always go up when you go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's 3,000 feet above sea level. It's a mountain. It's the top of a mountain. It's a military dream. It's the city everybody wants because it's really, uh, that's why I think the, the, the final battle, <laughs> some, some crazy things are going to go down there. Uh, it's a really important city, and it's up high. And so Jesus, after three years of ministry, is finally going up to Jerusalem. Um, and this is kind of important to know. You know, for instance, the 19 chapters in this book of Luke, uh, before this, that happens over the period of about three years. So it's fairly spread out. We don't know exactly when all of it happened, but it happened over three years. And then when you get to, to chapter 19, it all gets really squished. And, and all the stuff that happens from 19 all the way to the end of Luke, it all happens within like five or six days. Okay? Now, the reason that we're skipping ahead to this text, the reason that there's palm trees up here is because it's Palm Sunday. Happy Palm Sunday. I'm supposed to say thanks, Sam. Happy Palm Sunday. Yeah, okay, thank you. Happy Palm Sunday. So what Palm Sunday is, is something that, that evangelicals in the church have been celebrating for a long time. It's, the signifi- it's like signifying the kickoff to Passion Week. Passion Week is the last week of Jesus' life, and it's one of the most important things as Christians that we understand exactly what happened because every day in Passion Week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension is important. And everything that he does is important. And everything that he says is important. We need to understand that. Now, Jesus has been ministering for three years all throughout Galilee and Judea, um, going city to city, teaching in synagogues, healing people, casting out demons. He's really made quite a name for himself as he's traveled through, done all kinds of unexpected things. And now, after three years of this anticipated build, he's finally going up to Jerusalem. And it's actually really interesting. Mark records this moment where Jesus says he's up ahead. He's like 100 yards off walking, and his disciples are back there, and they know, oh man, we're finally, it's time, we're going to Jerusalem. And it says they're afraid. The disciples are afraid. Why are they afraid? Well, there's a few reasons. This is not a normal week in Jerusalem. Jesus, purposely, is taking his disciples up to Jerusalem during a very pivotal event that would come every year in Jerusalem. It's called Passover. Passover was a, a feast. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was something that had been celebrated all the way back from the Exodus to signify the Passover lamb. Uh, for those of you that haven't read it, basically they, they would sacrifice a lamb, put the blood on the door, and the, 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 um, the angel wouldn't take the firstborn. You can go back and read it in Exodus. Um, but essentially, God said, I want you to celebrate this every year, this Passover feast, and I want you to each take a lamb for each house, sacrifice it, eat it, make it part of your meal. That was the meal that, Je- that Jesus had with his disciples, where we get communion. Um, 
and then, uh, and then essentially take the blood and, 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 and we'll have the Passover lamb. And it's basically a reminder of this, this disconnect between God and between man. You do it every year. But this is a big deal in Jerusalem. Um, we have accounts uh, about 40 years after, actually only 10 years after Christ, we have accounts of, of uh, 2 million people being in the city of Jerusalem for Passover. And you might go, like, oh, big deal, that's like two Fresnos. But it's really big deal back then. That's a lot of people. And most of those were pilgrims coming in to have this Passover feast. Um, in addition to that, we have records of 260,000 lambs being brought into the city. There's historical records of there being so many lambs slaughtered that there was literally a river of blood flowing out of Jerusalem because of all the lambs that were slaughtered. You say, Sam, that's gruesome. Okay, it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be this yearly reminder of the sin of Jerusalem and of Israel, of God's people, and the disconnect between them and God. The theological term term for that is enmity. We have enmity between us and God. So this Passover feast is going on. And they're going up to Jerusalem, and the disciples are frightened, not only because they know that this is, uh, they're going in at a crazy time, they're frightened because Jesus told them what was going to happen when they go there. He said, I'm going to I'm going to die. I'm going to leave you. And they're still confused about it. They don't fully understand what's going on. But they know, they know Jesus is going to go into Jerusalem and he's going to say all of his Jesus-y things, which always starts problems. Like, oh man, Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem during Passover week? We're going to, this is going to start a war. I mean, he's going to call out the Pharisees. He's going to call them whitewashed tombs. You know, he's going to heal on the Sabbath. Like, man, this is going to be bad. And they're frightened, understandably so. Listen to me. Jerusalem was a tinderbox it's the religious epicenter of the entire ancient world at that time. That might be an overstatement. For Judaism, big time, okay? This is, this is where the, the, the Sanhedrin, the, the leaders of the Jewish religion, literally, uh, this is where they're camped. This is where the temple is. Rome is occupying. So there's all this tension between Rome and Israel, and all it would take is a spark to ignite something. And by the way, ignite something would mean like Rome's a shoe, and Israel's a bug, okay? It would take nothing for Rome to crush Israel, as we'll see. So all of that's going on. This is all this tension, and as they're going up to Jerusalem, it says Jesus went through two little cities. I just want you to note them really quick. In verse 28, he went through, I'm sorry, verse 29, when he drew near to Beth, Bethphage and Bethany. Those are two uh, important cities. Bethphage was a tiny little village just outside of the Mount of Olives, um, in Bethany, you might be familiar with that city. That's where uh, Jesus' friends lived, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. Um, that was kind of his home base for his six days during Passion Week. That's where he raised Lazarus. Um, and then he says, he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet. Sam, you're pausing every five words. I know, but this is important stuff. Okay. Um, the mount that is called Olivet. Now, Luke wants you guys to know. He wants me to know the writer of this gospel wants you to know where this is happening. Now, the typical sermon that we, we do um, for the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday is when Jesus is actually coming into the, the, um, coming into the eastern gate, which is where you would come into when you went over the Mount of Olives. Typically, that's where that's, that's usually what we focus on. And they're laying down palm branches and Jesus is coming into the city. Luke's account is a little different. Luke really wants you to understand that Jesus, actually this takes place up on the Mount of Olives. That's terrifying. Is that better? Was that the Borg? Does anyone want Star Trek? No, okay. Um, so this, <laughs> a couple of Star Trek fans, everyone else just thinks I'm a nerd. Okay. Um, so Jesus is coming up the Mount of Olives. Now what is the Mount of Olives? The, Jerusalem is on a mountain, right? Everybody follow me? Um, and it's a mountain 3,000 feet above sea level, but it's not the highest peak on the mountain. The highest peak is right next to it, and it's 300 feet above that, and that's called the Mount of Olives. It's the best view of Jerusalem. And if you were to come into Jerusalem from the east, like Jesus is, you have to go over the Mount of Olives, and once you crest the top of the Mount of Olives, you're blown away. I've been there. I've seen it. It's amazing. You're blown away with the, the view of Jerusalem. And you get the whole valley around, and Herod's temple would be there, magnificent and huge, covered in gold, reflecting the sun. And Luke really wants you to understand that this doesn't happen in the city. This happens in, on the Mount of Olives. It's very important to understand that. Mount of Olives has all kinds of significance, by the way, in the Bible. I don't know if you know this, but the Mount of Olives actually is the place that Jesus will soon ascend after his resurrection. 
The Mount of Olives is the place that, that the Old Testament prophets, prophets constantly were talking about that the glory of God would leave the temple and go and, and, and sort of live on the Mount of Olives for, for a season. The Mount of Olives is where the Garden of Gethsemane was, where Jesus um, you know, went through this intense prayer with the Father leading up to the cross. And most importantly, the Mount of Olives is where our risen, resurrected, and ascended Jesus, the King, will return, and his feet will touch down right here. Do you think Jesus knows all that stuff? Yeah, he knows all that. All this stuff's going through his mind. All of it's going through his mind. The Mount of Olives is very, very geographically important, and Luke knows that. We're actually not, I'm sorry to burst your bubble, we're not going to talk about palm branches today, even though we brought them in and, and, and put them on the stage. But there's no palm branches in this story. Um, this could better be probably uh, referred to as the triumphal procession, because they don't actually ever go into Jerusalem in this story. They do in other accounts. So, the donkey, look at verse 29. Let's talk about this. When he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. Now, just a quick note on this. Why is Jesus all of a sudden sending his disciples to go and get uh, the foal of a donkey, basically? A, uh, it's, it's a young, unbroken, unridden donkey, okay? Why does that matter? Why is that important? Well, if you have time to look at it later, Zechariah 9.9 in the Old Testament, it was prophesied that the Messiah, when he comes in, would ride on, you guessed it, a colt of a donkey, specifically. And it comes, it signifies that he's come bearing peace. And so Jesus, this isn't lost on him. He wasn't just random like, hey, go get a donkey. That might be fun. No, he's like, I am the Messiah, and I want everyone to know that I am the Messiah. So go get this, this full of a donkey, go get this colt, and bring it, and I'm, I'm going to ride it in. And he gives them some really funny instructions. He says, um, go, go and get, get this, and if someone says, hey, what are you doing? Just say, hey, the Lord needs it. You know, I want you guys to try, this is homework, I want you to try this uh, this week. So uh, a colt would probably be like comparable to like a pickup truck in our day, okay? This is a brand new one. Okay, and I want you to go to someone's house and just get in their truck and start it up. And when they say, what are you doing? You say, hey, the Lord has, the Lord has need of it, you know. Tell me how that goes. <laughs> it's not going to go well for you. Okay, that's kind of what's going on here. But, but Jesus has need for it. When he says the Lord has need of it, this guy would have known exactly who they were talking about. Because this guy probably lived in Bethphage, somewhere close. Jesus raised Lazarus probably hundreds of yards away from here. This guy knew when they said the Lord, they're saying, hey, Jesus, the Messiah, the one, yeah, he needs your, your donkey. Um, you know, and this guy could have very well said no, but he didn't. I just want to make a, a side, an application here on this. Um, God doesn't always give you a ton of details when he asks you for things. You know that? Um, sometimes he says, hey, I have need of this. I have need of your singleness. I know you really want to get married, but I have need of your singleness. Uh, I, I know you really want to have kids, but I actually have need of you to maybe adopt children. Hey, I know you really want to go towards this career, and you really were hoping this thing would work out, but I have need of a different path for you. Hey, I know this suffering doesn't make sense. This pain doesn't make sense. This physical ailment doesn't make sense, but I have need of your pain. I have need of your suffering, and he doesn't always give you all the details, but does he really have to? He knows what he's doing. I mean, they could have come up and said, hey, the Lord needs to fulfill Zechariah 9, 9 as his prophecy so that he can come in and everyone knows he's the Messiah, and they could have done that. But that's not really how Jesus rolls because he's trying to grow faith in us. That's what he's trying to do. So he tells them to go get this, this donkey. Verse 31, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, and they were untying the colt, and its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. Throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Now here's where we shift from the preparation to the, to the procession. So everything up to that point was really Jesus kind of creating this, this, this scene. And I want you to understand this. this is important. This is, Jesus is creating this scene. Jesus is making sure that this happens. He's gathering the crowd he, he's, he's, he's built all of this fame. He's come, he wants this parade to come into Jerusalem. And I really want you to be thinking about why. Because this is so un-Jesus. I mean, up until this point, he's been like, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. 
hey, I know I just raised you from the dead, but don't say anything, you know. All of a sudden, now he's creating a parade, and he, he wants it to be public. He wants it to be seen. He wants it to be known. He wants, he wants basically something huge to go off, and I, I just want you to think about kind of what that is. Now, moving into the procession, look at verse 35. They brought it to Jesus, throwing their, colts on the, or their cloaks on the colt. They set Jesus on it, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And there's some significance here in those verses I want you to see. Um, the fact that they set Jesus on the colt, as opposed to him just getting on it himself, it actually says a lot, and only Luke records that. It says that their intentions were to make him king. It says that their intentions were to, to, to make him the Messiah, because that's what that meant. They put him on the colt. They are crowning him king. And then as he begins to come over the Mount of Olives, they begin to throw their coats down in front of him. What does that symbolize? It's the ultimate sign of submission. It's the ultimate sign of, you're the king. It's like, you know, basically symbolizing, I'm gonna, I want to throw myself down in front of you on the ground, but I, I'm not going to do that because I'll get trampled by your, your, your donkey. So instead, I'm going to throw my coat down. It's the ultimate sign. They did the same thing to, by the way, same thing to King Jehu when he was christened as king, when he entered the city in the, in the same exact way. So Luke really wants us to understand that they want him to be their hero that they think he's the one that's going to fix everything. Then they begin to sing. Look at verse 36. And he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, and as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. What mighty works? Man, Jesus, he just healed Lazarus. It says six days before Passover. Man, they saw some crazy stuff, and they're praising God for it. Saying, this is what they're singing. Note this. Blessed is the king. Blessed is the what? Okay. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is what they're exclaiming. I want you to go with me really quick uh, to the left, to the book of Psalms 118. Because this is the chapter, this is the psalm that they're singing. They didn't just make that up. They're, they're quoting a psalm. The book of Psalms is kind of, it's a songbook of the songs that were sung by the Jews. And, and there's a portion of them, um, including this one, that are called the Psalms of Ascent. They were the songs that the Jewish people would sing as they were climbing Mount Zion, climbing, climbing up to Jerusalem. This one specifically was always sung on the way up to Passover. And it's really, it's a song of, of deliverance, uh, speaking about, you know, it doesn't really say much about the, the Messiah, you would think, at first read. Um, but it's just talking about, about blessed is he who, who comes in to be in the, the house of the Lord and all this kind of stuff. Um, it's a song of ascent. So I want you to look at verse 26 because this is what they're singing. 118, verse 26. They, it says this, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Well, that's interesting because they're not singing it right. They messed up the words. The psalm says blessed is what? He, okay. Well, what, do, what do they say in Luke? Blessed is the king. It's worth noting, because what they're essentially saying is, is, hey, this psalm is fulfilled in this man. By their own volition, Jesus didn't tell them to sing this. By their own volition, they are singing Psalm 118. Sam, why do we care? Well, go back a few verses. Look at verse 23, or 22. This is just, I want you to see what else is contained in this psalm, interestingly. Look at verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in your eye. Huh. So of their own volition, they're singing a psalm that just so happens, and changing it to king, by the way, which is them saying he's the Messiah. By their own volition, they just so happen to be singing a psalm that also contains the verse about the stone being rejected. Okay, just hold on to that. Just, I want to come back to that. Just hold on to that, and it's going to come up again later. So that's the psalm that they're singing. Go back to Luke 19. Now we hear from the Pharisees, like we always do. Now we hear from the Pharisees. Okay, the Pharisees, in verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, 
These are the religious leaders, okay? Uh, these are the most pious, sort of the, um, the, the, the religious people that everyone would kind of look to as the most religious. Uh, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why are they saying that? Um, well, they're saying it, for one, because he's claiming to be Messiah. Very clearly, very blatantly. Probably one of the most blatant assertions of his messiahship that we see in the entire New Testament. Uh, and so they see that as blasphemy. They're saying, stop it. But they're also saying that because, Jesus, you're going to screw up Passover for us. You understand that? Passover was a really big deal for them. All these people are here. And here comes this rabbi from Galilee who has been a thorn in our flesh for three years and now he is making a significant and scandalizing claim to be the king, the hero, the Messiah to bring shalom and peace and you are going to start a war with Rome. It's what, it's what they're thinking. If you come in here and start preaching what you preach, you are going to bring Rome down on us like a shoe and a bug. Or God forbid, you're going to start an insurrection and Israel is going to think they can go to war against Rome and we're going to get creamed. All this stuff is going through the Pharisees' head. They're nervous. Jesus makes you nervous sometimes, doesn't he? That's a good thing. He makes you nervous because he's uncontrollable. And he doesn't do what you think he should do. And he never says what you think he should say. I mean, sometimes you open the Bible and you ever start reading something and you think you know what Jesus is going to say and then he totally says the opposite. And it just wrecks your theology. You're like, oh man, now I've got to figure this out. That's kind of this passage for me. The first time I read it, I'm like, What? They're worried. They're worried that Jesus is going to come in and wreck their party. So they're telling them to stop. Tell your disciples to stop. Now, Jesus' response is really interesting. Okay? He answered, verse 40, I tell you, if these were silent, who? The crowd. The very stones would cry out. The very stones would cry out. That's a cool verse. You might underline that one. Now, I used to always read that to mean that if these guys don't worship me, then the rocks are going to start worshiping. It could mean that, but I, I don't, actually don't think so. Um, in fact, we sing some worship songs that, that kind of make it say that, but I think what, what Jesus is talking about here is much deeper than that. See, all throughout the Old Testament, there's pictures of creation itself, such as stones, testifying against the wickedness and the the... the the brokenness of humanity. The word here for cry out is not cry like, oh yay, the word here for cry is like, please, come and avenge. You guys awake? I always do that once at least, just gotta wake everybody up. The, the, the word there is not, yay, Jesus is here. The word for cry out is a scream for justice. We know that because in Genesis 4, God says when Cain killed Abel, the first murder in the scriptures, that when, Cain's, or when Abel's blood hit the ground, God said, why is the ground that soaked up his blood screaming out to me injustice? In other words, I knew you murdered your brother because the ground testified on you. And the one Jesus is referring to here is actually in Habakkuk chapter 2. And God is indicting the Chaldeans because they were wicked and evil at, beyond belief. And he says, the stones are screaming, telling me about you and your wickedness, calling for justice, calling for, for, for something to be done. Paul picks up the same idea in Romans chapter 8 when he talks about the fact that creation groans, eagerly waiting. Creation is, is unfortunately caught up in the brokenness that humanity has brought. And it's kind of a victim He's saying that if these people don't cry out for the need for a hero, then the stones will scream for God to come and fix what is broken. Isn't that cool? Way cooler than just rocks with little arms saying, praise Jesus, right? Way cooler. So that's what's happening there. Now, up into this point, let's move into the third division, the proclamation of Jesus. Up into this point, um, everything here has pretty much been described by the crowd. The crowd has been saying who they think he is. The crowd has been singing the psalm. The crowd has been saying what they want him to do. But now it shifts to, to Jesus. And now it's time to hear what Jesus actually says. Up until this point, the hero has been defined by them. 
This is the kind of hero he is. This is what the hero is going to do. The hero is going to bring peace. And Jesus says, okay, now let me tell you what kind of hero I am. And he has this, this brief little monologue in here. It's one of the most intriguing parts of the Bible I think I've ever studied. I was just completely captivated with it this week. So I want you to look at it. And when he drew near and saw the city, okay, what did he see? He saw the city. Luke keeps telling me that. You notice that? He keeps bringing that up. He's on the Mount of Olives. He's on the Mount of Olives. He's on the Mount of Olives, and he's looking at the city. And it's in this moment that something really intriguing happens. It says, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. What did he weep over? The city, okay? Some of you are thinking, man, Jesus just cries all the time. He actually really doesn't. We only have a couple accounts of him crying. One is the tomb of Lazarus. Another one is the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is another one. Um, but this one's a little different. And this one I don't want you to gloss over because you could just read over that and think, oh, big deal. Jesus, interestingly, has this, this amazing emotional reaction to the sight of the city of Jerusalem. Now, the, the Greek word here for tears, it's, it's not the, the word for, for sort of silently weeping. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I, you know, I'm, I'm a little emotional. I'm not the most emotional person, but when I'm in the movies and there's something about somebody losing their kid or, or something, like, I just, I get like that little tear, you know, and I'm kind of like, oh, wipe that away. Okay, you know, all right, we're good, we're good. Like, there, there's a silent kind of a crying that maybe someone wouldn't even notice that you're doing it, you know. Um, this is not what this is talking about. The, the Greek word here, and this, everyone will agree on this, um, the Greek word here is kleo, and it literally means, I'm reading this verbatim, weeping aloud, expressing uncontainable, audible grief. Okay? Jesus is, is bawling. He's howling. He's completely moved and distraught in the deepest parts of his soul. And everybody's watching. There's thousands of people around, and Jesus just stops the top of the mountain, sees the city, and just starts to wail. That's pretty weird. What is evoking this emotional response in Jesus? Why is he crying? Like, what, is, what is so intense about this moment? And I believe that understanding why Jesus cries actually kind of brings this whole thing together. So I want to give three reasons why Jesus is crying, okay? Three reasons why Jesus is crying. The first one is Jesus is lamenting Jerusalem's Christ-rejecting blindness. Their Christ-rejecting blindness. Look at what he says. He drew near and saw the city, and he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Okay, now that, that isn't super, super helpful as to why Jesus is crying, so I actually want you to flip over to Luke chapter 13. And this is really helpful in understanding this because Jesus, prior to this, was talking about Jerusalem, the city that seems to make him cry. Um, he's talking about Jerusalem, um, and he gives some, some really amazing explanation about how he feels about Jerusalem. And I don't think that Luke wasn't thinking about this when he penned that. They, they meant for these books to be read as a whole. Remember that. We read them like a verse on a fridge magnet at a time, but they were meant to be read as a whole. So Luke 13 in verse 31, at the very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here. And he said, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox. That's, that's not like a, he's a good looking guy. That's like, he's no good, right? Um, Behold, I cast out demons and perform curses, or curses, cures, today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Now pause right there for a minute. What Jesus is saying is, you think I'm worried about Herod? I decide when I die. I will plan my death. Herod does not decide. Jesus knew when he wanted to die and how he wanted to die from the very day that he was called. Okay, he knew where and when and how. God had revealed it to him. It was God's sovereign plan. Okay? And he says, you, you think I'm worried about getting killed? I'm not going to get killed until I go to Jerusalem. It's interesting because that's exactly what happened. Then listen to what he says about Jerusalem. Verse 34, he says, oh, Jerusalem. You've you got to read this with like, a, oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets. 
stones, or and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, now pause right there. I don't want you to read that yet. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, Jerusalem is the place where the prophets have always been killed. Remember that parable Jesus gave where he said that Israel is like this vineyard that was lent out, and the vineyard is Israel. And he says that the landowner every so often would send one of his servants to collect rent, and they would kill the servant. You send another servant and kill the servant. Send another servant, kill the servant. And finally, he says, I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect my son. And what do they do? They kill his son. That, that's talking about the prophets that for years, for hundreds of years, God in his gracious patience had been sending prophet after prophet, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Elijah, all of these prophets as messengers calling Israel, please, Israel, repent, turn to God, know that he is God, fear the Lord, stop worshiping idols, stop sacrificing your kids to Molech, stop worshiping, worshiping Baal, worship God, and the prophets come, and they come, and they come, and mostly to Jerusalem, and prophet after prophet after prophet is murdered and killed. Why? Because Israel wanted to shut them up. And Jesus says, I will be the last prophet to come and be killed. The final word is me. The ultimate prophet is me, the son of God, and I will only be killed in Jerusalem, and I will not be killed because it's an accident. I lay down my own life. I'm in control. And just in case you don't believe him, Look at the last verse of that. Behold, your house is forsaken. I tell you, you will not see me until you say, what we're saying is you will not see me in Jerusalem until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Are you getting this? He's saying, next time you see me, you're gonna sing Psalm 118 over me and then you're gonna kill me. That's what he's saying. The exact words that they sang over Jesus as he crests the Mount of Olives, Jesus already knew they were gonna say it. He knew. He is the lamb who lays down his life willingly. He is the foundation stone that has been willingly rejected. Remember earlier I had you read Psalm 118 and I said, don't forget that. You think it was any mistake that Jesus said, when you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, you're also going to reject me. I'm going to be the cornerstone that came to be the foundation of the temple, and you're going to throw me out in the rubbish pile. <laughs> but little do you know, I will be the foundation stone for a new temple. The point I'm trying to get here with this is that none of this is lost on Jesus. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly when he needed to die, exactly how he needed to die. He is the hero, listen, he is the hero that was so strong, and so smart, and so loving that he knew he was willing to, rather, rather than be the guy that comes in breaking down the doors and kicking out Rome, he says, that's not going to save anybody. The way that I will save my people is not by kicking walls down. The way that I will save my people is by dying in their place to deal with the deepest issue that there is. Isn't that incredible? Jesus says, I know you're going to kill me. In fact, I want you to kill me because I must suffer and die so that the ultimate enemy, death and sin, can be conquered because if I set up a kingdom and death and sin has still not been conquered, then that kingdom will not last. This is what he's saying. Nothing is lost on Jesus. Going back to Luke 19. So the first reason that he is weeping, the first reason he's crying is because he knows that the only way that he can save his people is for them to crucify him, for them to reject him. And it breaks his heart. He's fully God, he's also fully man. And there's an application that I wanna give you really quick on this that I think someone in here needs to hear. You know, some of you feel like, you know, how can God possibly care about how I'm feeling right now if he's sovereign? If God already knows everything and God knows everything's gonna work out the way he wants it to work out, how can God possibly care in this moment that I am struggling and suffering in the way that I am struggling and suffering? 
But here we see Jesus, the picture of God the Father. On the top of Mount Olives, in complete understanding as to what is going to happen, yet wailing. Why? Because he loves Jerusalem. He loves his people. And even though he knows everything is going to work out, he is still enters into that moment with them and grieves with them because God is moved. God is both sovereign and omniscient, yet still enters into our grief with us. Amen? He comes into those moments. He cares. He's moved by what you're feeling. He's the ultimate high priest. He cares. He weeps because he loves Jerusalem. He loves Israel. This is his kid. He says, I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her young. Oh, Israel, if you had only turned, I would have come and been the Messiah that you need right now, but instead I have to die to change the deepest parts of your soul. So what? So what? You might be saying, well, did they reject him? I mean, there's a big parade for him. Yeah, that parade was very shallow. These people are cheering, praise God. Look at all he's done. Jesus knows, he's not impressed by it. He knows within a few days, that crowd will cheer something else and it will be, we want Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Kill that man. Kill our hero. We don't want him. Why? Because we don't want the kind of kingdom he's talking about. Why? Because we don't want the challenges that he's pushing against us. Why? Because he's not what we expected. He's not the hero we, look, we wanted. He's not the hero we wanted. He's not the hero we were looking for. So kill him. Give us Barabbas. Same crowd. Jesus is weeping because he knows in a few days these guys are going to turn. Their faith is shallow. Why? Because the ultimate enemy has not been conquered yet. Their faith is shallow. The second reason Jesus is weeping is because he knows there's only way, one way for true peace to be accomplished. Look at what he says in, in 42 in the text. He says, when he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. What does he mean when he says the things that are made for peace? He's, he's drawing back to what they just said. What they just said in a few verses earlier was, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. In other words, bring shalom, Messiah, come and bring peace and heal us. And Jesus starts weeping and he's shrugging his head and he says, you don't know what you're asking for. You don't know what peace is going to cost. It's going to cost me everything. Do you think it was any mistake that Jesus came in during Passover? Was that just because he wanted a lot of people there? Is that because he wanted his fame to be spread? No. Jesus came in on Passover because he is the final, ultimate Passover lamb. And the hundreds of thousands of millions of lambs that were that were, were, were slain up into that time could not atone for the enmity between God and man. The river of blood running out of Jerusalem from all of the lambs that were slain could not atone and heal the wound that truly curses humanity, and that is that there is a gap between us and God the Father. We are broken, not just because we're, we have sickness, we're broken because God is dis distant from us. And the cross heals that gap. The Passover lamb heals that gap. Jesus says, you don't know what peace is going to cost me. Do you understand what peace costs? Do you think that uh, maybe just some, some, some empty, hopeful Christian slogans can give you peace? Do you think that just jumping into church motion and, and religious culture and Christian culture, do you think that's going to give you peace? You think putting a fish on your, your bumper sticker is going to give you peace? Is that what peace costs? Just thinking good thoughts? Leading a more moral life? If that was all it was, Jesus wouldn't have come to die. What peace costs is the Lamb of God. What peace costs is every ounce of Jesus' blood that was poured out so that we could be brought back to the Father. That's what peace costs. And this is why Jesus is weeping. Because he knows what it costs. Do we know what it costs? Do we live 
as though the peace that God has given us actually costs the most valuable blood that has ever walked in this earth. Why did Jesus have to die? Because someone had to. One man's death wouldn't be enough, but the God-man's death could cover it. Jesus had to suffer what we were supposed to suffer. Jesus had to experience separation from God so that we could experience closeness with God. He had to stand in the gap and be smitten with the wrath of God so that we could bridge the gap and be with the Father. Do you understand this is what it cost? This is not just something that you add to your life. This is everything. This gospel that we preach costs Jesus everything. And we see his emotional response in the garden. When he weeps tears of blood, he literally weeps tears of blood because he's so wrecked over what it's going to cost him to buy the peace, to become our hero. You think it's because he was smitten by men? You think he was afraid of getting beat? Jesus wasn't a coward. He was afraid of the enmity that would happen between him and God. He was afraid of the disconnect that was about to come between him and the Father. Oh, if you only knew what made for peace. There is no peace in Jerusalem unless the lamb dies. God could have given Israel a million more years living in the old covenant and they never, ever would have pulled it off. The stones would have continued to cry out of the injustice and the paganism and the idolatry of God's people. Only the lamb being slain. There's a really good example of this in the movie Lord of the Rings or the book. And I think Tolkien had it in mind. Only, evil could only be destroyed if the ring was destroyed. You could kill as many orcs and goblins and, and go to war and fight as many wizards as you want, but until that ring goes into the mountain, there is no peace. There was the, the battle in the beginning, but the ring endured, so the spirit of Sauron endured. What do you think Tolkien was thinking about when he wrote that? He was thinking about the ultimate enemy, the enemy that has to die for there to be any peace. It's not Rome. It's not anything on this earth. It is something within us that has to die, that has to be thrown into the mountain. And the only way it could die was through the substitution of Jesus in our place, giving us a new heart and a new life that he bought with his blood. It's the only way peace can come. And God will bring peace. God will bring a kingdom. God will touch his feet down on that mountain again, and he will establish, it says in Zechariah, that when his feet hit the mountain of olives, it will crack in two in the book of Ezekiel, and that a river will come out of the new temple, which is you and I, and the river will pour out into the nations and heal all the lands. That cannot happen until the keys of the kingdom have been taken back by Jesus. He had to die first. He had to purchase the kingdom so that he can come and consummate the kingdom. And we are in the middle waiting for that. Amen. Are we living like that blood is precious? It gets a little more intense, actually. Jesus, look at this. The third thing that he's lamenting over, we see in verse 43. He says, if you knew the things that made for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, verse 43, for the days will come upon you. Now, (laughs) this is the last thing I would have expected Jesus to say in this moment. Okay, everyone's excited. Man, Messiah's coming into Jerusalem. Oh, we're just, we're having a parade. This is amazing. And then Jesus stops and starts crying, and then he opens his mouth and he says, here's reality. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. What? Jesus, everybody's here. They're, they're praising you. This is exciting. This is a parade. You're going to come into Jerusalem, and, you, and now you stop and, and, and like let out this Old Testament prophecy about Jerusalem being destroyed, and all the stones being knocked off of the temple, and, and the place being burned, and what in the world is that all about? Why is Jesus saying that? Well, first of all, he's right. Forty years later, Jerusalem rebelled from Rome. You know what Rome did? They wiped out Jerusalem. This is part of the reason Jesus is crying. He knows Jerusalem is toast. Rome comes in, man. 
And like the boot in the bug, they burn the city, they knock down the walls, they crush and ro- they, they, they move the temple stones and, and throw them on there because they're still there. You can still see them. The temple was destroyed and Jerusalem was sacked. And the exact way that Jesus said, why is Jesus saying that? He's saying that because he does not want them to build this new kingdom on the old covenant. He needs to build a new foundation. And that foundation cannot be the temple because the temple didn't work. It didn't work. It wasn't a mistake. It was meant to show that it wouldn't work. Fun fact, there was only 50 years, 50 years out of the entire time that the temple was in existence, that there wasn't a pagan idol in the holy place of the temple. A physical, tangible idol in the holy place, along with God's presence. The stones have been crying out for far too long. And Jesus says, those stones are now going to be destroyed. Because I have to lay a groundwork for a new thing, a new kingdom, a new covenant, and Jerusalem has become your idol. Your nation has become your idol. Here's what I want you to understand. God does not allow you, if, he, if, if, if you are his, and I hope that you are, he does not allow you to build Christ's kingdom on your foundation. And there's a lot of us that want to add Christianity. This Christianity sounds pretty good. There's some hope, some good feelings, some cool friends, maybe some, some, some music and some this and some that. And the Bible's kind of interesting. And I'm just going to, I love that. I'm just going to add that right into my junk drawer of life things. <laughs> Tim Keller, he, he says, you can kill me or crown me, but I will not allow you to just like me. That's what Jesus is basically saying. You, you can either put me on the cross or you can put me on the throne, but you will not, you will not simply like me. Jesus will not be liked. He will be served or he will be crucified. Well, Sam, that's not very tolerant. I'm sorry. The Bible is not. The Bible makes it very clear. Either you're in the new covenant covered by the blood of the Passover lamb or you're in Jerusalem when it gets destroyed. The king is coming, and we are not called to build anything on a foundation other than him, the chief cornerstone. There is a moment in every believer's life, whether it be at the beginning or in the middle or at the end, and I like to call it the crisis moment. It's the moment when everything gets destroyed, and you are forced to make a decision, and it validates or devalidates your faith. Some people, you know, you you never had that when you got saved, and that's okay, you'll probably have it at some point. Some of you say, I just grew up in the church and I just always believed. And that's, that's great. I believe that that can happen. But at some point, you, the heat will turn up and you will be forced to ask the question, what is the foundation of my life? Jesus will not let you like him. You serve him or you don't. And things will heat up and you'll have to decide. This is exactly what happened with this rich young ruler. This guy's all pumped. He comes up to Jesus and says, all right, what do I got to do? What do I got to add? How how do I become better? Let me just throw you onto the foundation of my good works and things that I've already done. Jesus says, no. No way, buddy. Here's your crisis moment. It's me, and you sell everything you have and give up your reputation and come be homeless, or you lose me altogether. That's the crisis moment. The crisis moment is Jesus with Nicodemus, one of the most admired spiritual leaders in Jerusalem at the time, coming at night because he was worried and talking to Jesus. And Jesus says, you want to know what you need to do to, uh, to get into the kingdom? You got to basically become a baby. You got to be reborn. What he was telling Nicodemus is all of that stuff, all the education you spent your whole life doing, all of the religious things that you've been piling up and looking how much I did, all that's rubbish. God can't build on that at all. Your new foundation has to be nothing but Christ. And to get to that point, you have to be willing to forsake everything. You say, well, man, I just don't know if I'm willing to forsake everything. When you see Jesus as supremely valuable, you will. When you see Jesus and who he really is, you think you're going to care about your stuff? You think I'm going to care about anything else? That's why Jesus was saying, any man would follow me must forsake father and mother 
etc., etc. Not because God is against fathers and mothers, but because Jesus is the supreme value in the universe and God loves you enough to give you nothing short of himself. If he gave you anything else, he would not be the ultimate hero. He is the ultimate hero. Are you thankful for him? Are you thankful for him? He wants all of you. If you want peace, peace only comes when you let go. I'm not talking some bumper sticker slogan, let go and let God. I'm talking about crisis moment level stuff where you say, I don't care about anything. I care about God and I'm gonna give him everything. I'm gonna trust him with all. I'm gonna trust him with the stuff in my past. I'm gonna trust him with the stuff in my present. I'm gonna trust him with all of my finance. I'm gonna trust him with my health. I'm gonna trust him with my stuff. I'm gonna trust him with my family and he will be the full essence of what I see in my screen. Nothing else is more important than him. That's the only way you're going to experience true freedom and true peace. It came at a cost, and that Jesus was, he was that cost. He is the foundation, he is the Passover lamb, and he is the king. He is the hero that we need. Amen? Will you guys stand? Lord, I'm just so thankful this morning. I just feel like we need to have worship. <laughs> but I didn't set it up, so. But Lord, I just, feel like, I just feel like you're so present here right now. And I feel like, Lord, to rush on would just be to quench what you're trying to do. God, we just, we just, we're blown away, Father, this morning by the cost the way that you saved us. Well, you gave everything. You didn't hold back anything. You purposely died. You were born to die to save us. Well, I'm so thankful for that. I pray this morning, right now, God, for everyone in this room who is feeling your hand pressing them. Maybe it's non-believers. Maybe it's believers. I don't know, Lord. But, but for everyone in this room that you are pressing right now, press harder. Lord, bring it, make us so uncomfortable that we have to choose because your yoke is easy and your burden is light, but we have to take off our yoke of this world first. And Lord, I just pray that, that those yokes would just be shed right now, that people would just begin and choose to step into the freedom that it is to give you complete control of their lives, to stop holding back those areas, to give you the high places, to give you the strongholds. Lord, please press them. Give them that freedom. Give me that freedom, Lord. Show me the places in my life where I've not let you reign. I have not given you sovereignty. Lord, what do you have need of us this morning? And Lord, don't let us leave those doors until we've dealt with it. Lord, if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, has not yet pull, put all of themselves on the saving faith of what you accomplished on the cross for them, Lord, press them. Help them to see the Savior that you are the hope that you have for them. We just pray against the enemy and his lies right now. The lies that would tell us that this is just a feeling, it's just an emotion. We just pray against that. We pray that truth would reign, that your light would come into this place. Lord, we love you so much. And I love you, Lord. And I lift my hands.